0: WDBM, East Lansing.
1: Welcome to the Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou
0: and Daniel Puentes.
1: As many of you know, for the spring semester right now in 2022, MSU started off with a virtual option for classes for the first three weeks. Now we are back in person. In lieu of that, we're talking to Paul Bilesma about his research comparing the Zoom learning world and the in-person learning world. I'll let him tell us more about it, though. Thanks for coming to talk to us about your research, Paul. May you please tell us more about it and about yourself?
2: Thanks, Chelsea. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, my name, like you said, is Paul Bilesma. I am a fourth-year doctoral in the Higher Adult and Lifelong Education Program, which is uh, part of the Department of Educational Administration in the College of Ed here at Michigan State. This research that I was writing about, it actually co-written with my advisor, Dr. Shah Jahan in the department. We wanted to take a closer look about our experience in the pandemic. So this paper is all about just trying to make sense of our own experiences, being stuck at home, teaching and learning through a computer, even though there are other human beings on the other side of the screen. So we were taking a look at the classes that we were a part of, mostly seminar style classes that had to be moved online. You know, 20, 30 students in a classroom that is one thing in person and is something very different through Zoom. So we just wanted to enliven the scholarly conversation around what we were actually feeling as we were isolated in our homes during the COVID lockdown.
0: Nice to meet you, Paul, and thanks for coming in to talk to us today. Even though we're a student-based radio station, we have a lot of listeners that tune in that aren't necessarily in the education setting at the moment. Can you explain the difference to our audience what it's like to learn in a virtual setting comparatively to a physical setting?
2: That's a great question, and that's a question that we were trying to answer in this paper. So essentially, learning in a virtual classroom looks very similar to learning in an in-person classroom. You can still see your classmates, you can hear your classmates and your professor. You can communicate with people via the chat function. That's like passing notes, but something just felt a little bit different. Of course, we were geographically separated from each other, but at the very same time, we looked like we were really close. So this paper develops the idea of proximate ambivalence. This is a term that we developed and introduced in the conversation. And what we mean by proximate ambivalence is a simultaneous distance and proximity to a desired object or space or person. This is actually a pretty common experience that we just got really well acquainted with over the pandemic. So think about like seeing somebody through a window or across the room when you're mouthing something to them. You're at the same time very close because you're communicating, but also very far because you can't shake hands or have a regular conversation. Or think about like when you're in high school, you know, you're in a class of somebody who you just had a fight with or you just broke up with or something. You're very close to them physically, but you feel very distant from them emotionally. So we tried to develop this idea of proximate ambivalence in an online setting where we were visually very close to each other, but geographically we were separated by great distances, sometimes time zones and even oceans. So for an example, we're close to each other, we can see into each other's living room or bedroom or wherever you're in class when the camera is on. We saw families, we saw each other's dogs, our faces were literally right next to each other. But this is all just kind of an illusion. Technology propped up this illusion that we were close because the geographic distances that were separating us posed quite a barrier to some of the ways that we could communicate with each other. So we tried to use proximate ambivalence to identify those distances that were very real despite being masked by our visual closeness.
1: Like Danny mentioned, there are some people that may not be as familiar as others with the virtual platform. So nowadays you have the option to turn your camera on. There are even options to get polls and people do fun interactive things like games. There are so many different programs out there that we can do this with. We typically hear about Zoom, but there are many others that people use for virtual meetings as well. In your study, did you take into account these factors that I'm mentioning, such as videos and polls and other interactive things that people can do virtually?
2: That's a great question. Uh, And to answer it shortly... No, we didn't really consider that because this was a different type of study. This was more of a theoretical observation about some of the things that were going on in this online educational experience. So we do talk a little bit about the reaction emojis that you can use. in if you're familiar with the platform, you know that there's like a heart that you can throw up there or uh, a laughing, crying face. So we, we took observations like that to dive into this theory that online education was missing some of the more affective or emotional and embodied elements that we take for granted in an in-person setting.
0: Fortunately, I didn't have to deal with actually participating in a virtual classroom because I was already done with that portion of my PhD. I could imagine how that proximate ambivalence can play a role in the way that students are interacting with each other as well as the teacher, as well as the feelings that are associated with virtual learning. I see it all the time whenever I'm, for example, participating in a virtual conference. It's just not the same. As a physicist, I know our experimental efforts are often motivated by different theoretical frameworks. What theoretical frameworks are motivating your research?
2: Thanks, Danny. I'm glad that you brought that up. So, we used my co author and I used affect theory to support this idea of proximate ambivalence. Affect is a really interesting theory, so, it draws on a lot of different fields from neuroscience and biology on one end of the spectrum to feminist theory and continental philosophy on the other end. So it's a really broad field, and it's also pretty new. Some of the earlier, the more seminal works in affect theory were published in the early 1990s. So, yeah, I guess that's been 30 years now already, but there's still a lot of room for this theory to grow and develop. So we used affect theory to kind of make sense of these observations that we were making about our simultaneous distance and proximity to the classroom and our classmates, our peers, our professors, etc. Just a a little bit about affect theory, because it's really important to this paper. The theory itself privileges human existence as emergent. So as emerging, there's this perception of the human body that is constantly emerging in each new interaction. So in in an encounter with space or an atmosphere, and this happens every second of the day. Uh, I think of this as like a free fall through time. So the, the present is always so fleeting and the future is indeterminate. Like there's this infinite range of possibilities where only one of those possibilities manifests and then it's gone. So it's like we're free-falling through time in a way, facing an infinite amount of possibilities until one of them manifests and then it's the past. But there's also this physicality to it. So affect theories see humans as more than just the mind. So kind of doing away with this Cartesian split between the mind and the body. But the body then makes its way through the world. This free-fall through the infinities of the future is a physical concept. So we talk about intelligence in affect theory as like an idea of performance knowledge. It's like a form of body intelligence. So as an example, I think of like driving on the freeway when there's moderate traffic where you have to be aware of what you're doing. So you're not thinking about everything, but your hands are still on the steering wheel and, and they're moving it accordingly. you know like hopefully you're checking your blind spot. maybe you don't even think about that. So this is an example of what body knowledge is, what performance knowledge. It gets to the point where you're not thinking about the movement, but your body is still doing it anyway. There's also an emphasis on emotion. So, affect theory kind of incorporates everything that is cognitive in a way, the things that our bodies do without us really thinking about it. Beyond focusing on humans' emergent nature uh, and emotional nature, there's also this emphasis on a co relationship between bodies and their surroundings, to the idea where the body is almost decentered, where the human experience is almost decentered in any given encounter. They have this idea, affect theorists have this idea that we can't know anything in an isolated state, so knowledge is always going to be co-created through encounters. As an example, you know, I can't know that there's a desk in front of me without hitting the desk, or I can't learn new things without having new experiences. So there's always going to be this intersection, an assemblage of time and space and body and emotion and intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So we use affect theory in this paper. We define it as an interpersonal form of communication. And here I'm I'm quoting the paper. Affect is an interpersonal form of communication that circulates between embodied people and their environments and registers as an intelligence that eludes reflective consciousness.
1: That's a lot to take in there. That's quite different than the research that I do when we talk about our theories, but this makes a good amount of sense to me whenever you're saying that people's body language and them being there in person is a completely different kind of communication form than whenever you're virtual. Whenever you're virtual, you can only maybe see the person's upper body and their hand movement, but not their actual body language. Now that we've spoken about the theoretical aspects of your research, what about the observational aspects? How did you do these observations? For example, were you teaching a class or did you sit in on a class and did you talk to the participants after?
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, at this point I was a uh, student still taking courses as a part of my PhD, but I'm also teaching on the side. So I was on both sides of the desk during these observations. My co author, too, was teaching classes, of course, a student not taking any. It was actually an interesting experience we had in the spring of 2021. My co-author was the teacher of record and I was a teaching assistant. So we had this experience together where we were teaching or facilitating an online class. So a lot of the observations that we made were from our own teaching experience, being stuck in a Zoom classroom when without the pandemic, we would have absolutely been in person. So we try to organize our uh, observations according to two categories, and one of them is talking about how bodies surface in relation to different stimuli, which of course is grounded in affect theory that we were just talking about. And the other is talking about affective atmospheres, or kind of the feel of the room when you walk in. So for an example, your body surfaces in an encounter. This is what affect theory would say. A simple example is when you stub your toe. You know, you're not really aware of your toe until you stub it on something and then, darn it, it hurts. You you become aware of the boundaries, the surfaces of your body. The effect of atmosphere is a little bit more complicated, but uh, essentially we're talking about the ethos or, or the environment in a particular space that both drives our behavior and is driven by our behavior. So thinking about like going to Spartan Stadium for a football game, you know, you walk into a stadium and you can feel that you're there. Thousands of people, PA speaker, everything that you're feeling in that space with all those other people is what we would consider an affective atmosphere. So taking these concepts of bodies surfacing and then creating affective atmospheres, we notice the differences in how bodies surface in an in-person classroom or how an affective atmosphere is created in an in-person classroom. Uh, and compared that to how bodies can or cannot surface in an online classroom. Similarly, how it's much more difficult to create and really participate in an affective atmosphere when you're in an online Zoom classroom, even if that class is meeting synchronously. So one observation that we made, Chelsea, actually alludes back to something that you were talking about earlier with body language. So it's this idea that through the camera, through the webcam, our bodies are only partially surfaced. So we can see and hear each other, like you mentioned, but that's pretty much it. We, we couldn't sense each other. You know how you can sense when a body is close to you? For better or for worse, we couldn't smell each other or touch each other. And so the only part of our affective capacity was utilized in online classroom. And this, honestly, doesn't really seem like a big deal until we consider just how much communication is through our bodies On Zoom, I mean, in those tiny squares, it is hard to see somebody raise their hand. Speaking from the perspective of a teacher, it's difficult to see somebody raise their hand. You know, it's really hard to tell when somebody is making eye contact, which is a great indicator in an in-person classroom that somebody is paying attention. Body language of any sort is just so subtle on the camera, it's really difficult to pick that up. And so you feel like you're disconnected in a way. When only part of our body is being broadcast through a webcam, we just leave so much of our communication off camera and out of the actual conversation. And so I mentioned this earlier, but the Zoom platform attempts to compensate for this, like these emojis and these reactions that you can project. First of all, it's really awkward to project a cartoon emoji for like 10 seconds. The moment kind of comes and is gone, but that adds to the point. That's exactly what we're talking about. Zoom, to their credit, is realizing that like, there's this whole affective element to conversation that just doesn't translate through a webcam. So they have these exaggerated cartoon emojis that you're supposed to be able to use to make up for that lost effect. Of course, you can't totally make up for it, but still. So it, we've observed then in our own teaching experience that when only part of our bodies surface in a conversation, we're missing out on a lot. And this isn't something that comes to mind right away.
0: I'm not too surprised about that observation that you made. And it makes me think about another thing that happens whenever we're in these Zoom settings. Like I had mentioned earlier, I've had these experiences with virtual conferences. And whenever it's just on and on, I have a pretty hard time actually staying involved and listening to what's actually being said in the conference. Have you observed how often people are losing attention when it comes to these virtual online settings?
2: Sure, I wouldn't say that we've uh, observed quantitatively how often people are zoning out of the Zoom meetings, but the whole idea that people are able to zone out, that there are distractions, or that there is unreliable media, is kind of the point that we are making here. In an in-person setting, the bodies are fully surfacing against one another, an atmosphere is being created in the classroom. So even if you're tuned out in an in-person classroom, you're still physically there. You can still be you know, for lack of a better term, you can still be surveilled by your peers or by the professor if you are on your phone or something. There are a couple of distractions that we observed, too. One of them is exactly what you mentioned, is being distracted. You know, there's always laundry to do, right? Good luck sitting through a three-hour online class when you have YouTube or Reddit open on the next tab. But what we think about how distractions prevent bodies from surfacing in relation to the rest of the group. And as a result, it's really difficult to create an atmosphere with the whole class. So, for example, if your whole class is talking about whatever topic and you are not paying attention, but instead watching some silly video on YouTube, you're surfacing in relation to different things. In other words, you're encountering different stimuli than the rest of the class. And when different folks are surfacing in relationship to different things, it's really, really hard to create a shared atmosphere between everybody. So that's an intentional distraction, but there are unintentional ways of disengaging as well. You know, I'm thinking about a computer that I used to use until this pandemic hit. I'm thinking about an old computer I had to use, and it just did not support Zoom. You know, my internet was fine, my lighting was okay, but the hardware just did not support this type of internet software that was necessary to participate in the class. But sometimes the internet does go out. Sometimes the lighting is bad. Sometimes the microphone messes up. Whatever. Essentially, we're prevented from surfacing beyond our intention to because our hardware is bad, because our digital media is bad. So we could do this on purpose by disengaging and watching a YouTube video, but sometimes it wasn't up to us. You know, sometimes our internet went out for no reason, and then all of a sudden, bam, we're gone. We're out of the Zoom class. Of course, this can be really distracting for us. It can be distracting for the rest of the people in the room. But the idea is that this discontinuity of bodies that are otherwise going to be continuously present in the classroom. So whether we choose to be present or whether being present is out of our control, like with bad internet or a bad microphone, our discontinuous presence disrupts an atmosphere that we wouldn't have a problem creating in an in-person classroom because we're going to be physically present.
1: Like I mentioned at the start of this interview, we are now back in person for our classes. However, there are still hybrid options, for example, if someone is sick or if they need certain accommodations. From an accessibility standpoint, How can we use the virtual options more effectively, and how can we strengthen the educational environment using virtual and in-person options as a hybrid way?
2: Wow, that is an excellent question. You know, I think that it's probably beyond the scope of this particular piece of research to prescribe specific pedagogical practices, but I do think that using this affect theoretical lens can help teachers or pedagogues of any sort navigate this online or hybrid space better. So if we're paying attention to the things that affect theory asks us to pay attention to, such as how bodies are emerging through time, the importance of our emotional selves, then I think that we're going to be aware and maybe pay a little bit more attention to some of these things that are otherwise taken for granted in an online space. You know, for example, in a hybrid learning environment, having people in person and online presents real challenges to faculty. Having been there myself as a teacher, I know that it's not difficult. But if we're paying attention to the distances between our bodies, to the difficulty in creating a continuous effective atmosphere between people who are online and people who are in the classroom, we're going to be thinking of different ways to assuage that a little bit. Maybe this means just staying in constant contact through verbal check-ins with people who are online making sure that they feel like they're a part of the atmosphere that we've created in the classroom. Again, I'm not going to try to pretend like I have all the answers to that question. It's a great question to ask, but I think that using this theoretical perspective is going to help people a lot when they're trying to figure out how to navigate the ambiguous spaces in a hybrid classroom.
0: Yeah, and mention how it's important for a person to be able to see another body when it comes to the virtual learning setting. But how does the space and also just the location that a person is in impact the effectiveness of the learning in that virtual environment? Like, for example, it makes you think about how sometimes people use green screens to say they're in one location. But in reality, they're actually just doing something completely different and unrelated to the learning that's happening in that setting.
2: That's a really important point. And thanks for bringing that up, Danny. Space is really important. Like I mentioned earlier, affect theory really privileges the role of environment or atmosphere in this case. So, we would have been doing a disservice to our theoretical lens if we didn't talk about space. The two ways that we talked about space or the places where we were in our virtual learning was uh, to think about how all of these different spaces that we would usually occupy and differentiate between, were all conflated into one space wherever we were holed up during a lockdown. So, we were a lot of us were confined to our home. You know, this space was primarily used for living. Now, all of a sudden, it's turned into our office and our living, but also like the break room, but also our dining room. And we did our laundry there. So this deserves some attention. The idea is that we get behavioral cues from different spaces. And the way that we act in those spaces is going to be influenced by those cues. So when we start to conflate our spaces, we're getting behavioral cues that really don't have anything to do with what we're supposed to be doing in this new multifunction or functionally ambiguous space. So personally, when the lockdown started in March of 2020, I I went to my basement. You know, this is a a space that I've curated. It's got a TV and a Nintendo 64 and a dartboard. And, you know, I walk into this space and I know what version of myself I can be there. But I had to do literally all of my schoolwork, all of my assistantship work there as well. So at first, it's kind of fun. You know, you're, you're doing all this serious work underneath a dartboard, but at some point you just wonder what the heck you're supposed to be doing when you know you've got papers to write and classes to take and classes to teach, but also you've got Mario Kart plugged into the console right next to you. So we're, we're thinking about how we as bodies relate to a particular space and what happens to our bodies physically and emotionally when we're being bombarded by all of these clashing behavioral cues. You're in the basement. This is where you throw darts but you're in the basement to work. So it's time to put your head down and work. It requires a different kind of body work that isn't necessarily expected when you walk into a space with a particular focus, like a classroom.
1: Well, it's clear that we still have a lot to learn when it comes to online learning versus in-person learning and even hybrid options too. Thank you so much for telling us about your research, Paul, and I look forward to hearing what you discover in the future.
2: Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Danny. It was a privilege to be a part of your show. Have a great semester.
1: Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org.
0: If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.